Hello there, my dear, patient, good-looking, and intelligent listeners. Here's something you haven't heard in a while. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. So when you're finished with this, please visit audiblepodcast.com forward slash WWII. Yes, I have my own link for a free Audible book download. Try it out. They have different memberships to fit your specific need, and I'm sure you'll find many somethings to love. Now, on my website, worldwar2podcast.net, I think I have a list of at least 30 items from Audible that I recommend to you. But, you know, if you've already heard them, go to Audible and get something you want with your free download. Now, some of the ones I may or may not have on my list, there's the Monuments Men, which they just made a movie out of. It looks pretty good. I've heard that, and I really liked it a lot. There's um, something I haven't recommended yet because it's near the end of the war. It's the Report from Nuremberg, the International War Crimes Trial. That's really good. They take some of the transcript from the trial and have different actors read it, and it really makes you feel like you're there, that it's happening live. Um, If you haven't listened to The Book Thief, I promise you, you will absolutely love that book. They made it into a film, which I obviously haven't seen yet, but the book just blew me away, and you're not going to believe who the narrator is. Uh, There's a couple of books on Gallipoli, and of course there are many books about Churchill and by Churchill. So uh, check them all out. And um, don't forget to go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash WWII so they know who sent you. And that can help me pay for my computer bills. I just got my computer out of the shop, but more on that later. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 96 foils and follies. Admiral Sackville Carden, the ranking British naval officer in the Mediterranean, had impressed Winston with his plan of attack against the Dardanelles. That the majority of its details were already worked out went a long way in Churchill getting it past the War Council. But this plan was Carden on paper, thinking around a table, pulling it off, sending men into action, some to their death was something else altogether different, and that Cardin was not the man for. In his defense, the face of war, with so many new or newer versions of weapons that could do so much more, was hard to keep all in one's head once the shooting started. So Cardin cannot be completely blamed for what is about to happen, because many others would meet his same end before the war was over. And as the operation commenced on February 19, 1915, Cardin's weakness came to the fore. Namely, he was a worrier. To be sure, there were others who worried during battle. For one, General Richard O'Connor during the Battle of North Africa. But he managed to hide it from his men, even his staff. And so, they all went about feeling secure in his leadership. But for Cardin, it was a different story. He not only wore his worries on his sleeve, but voiced them to his staff. His worry over the line of guns on either side of the strait facing him, though they were small and obsolete, compared to his ship's hulls and his guns. He worried over whatever items may drift into his ships, but, as his staff told him, there was no tide here. He worried over ice ramming into his ships, But, his staff told him, if his men could handle what ice there was in the Orkney Islands, this would be a breeze. Still, Cardin refused to be calmed. 
He worried over, and in this he certainly can't be blamed, minefields set up to defeat his cause. Of all the issues swirling around in his head, this was the most dangerous one. But the Admiralty judged that a victory here was worth the loss of a few ships and men. Besides, they had also sent him adequate minesweepers. In the end, Cardin's plan was sound, but it was himself within the plan that worried him the most. And, like most self-fulfilling prophecies, Cardin would manifest his loss of control and nerve. The attack started at 9.51 that Friday morning, and started off well. The eight British battleships, supported by four French, approached the opening of the channel and bombarded both ends of the opening, Kumkal to the south and Cape Hellas to the north. The word battle doesn't even come close to describing this exchange. The shore batteries could not reach the ships, while they had no problems devastating everything they could see. In fact, by two o'clock that afternoon, the Allied ships moved within to 6,000 yards, their firing becoming that much more accurate. Fewer and fewer shore guns managed to respond in kind. By 4.45 p.m., it was deemed safe enough for de Robeck, Cardin's second-in-command, to take the vessels Vengeance, Cornwallis, and Suffren even closer. Just before dark, the blockhouses were decimated, the defenses deserted. Then the weather decided to play a part in this possible war-altering battle. The sea rose, snow fell from the sky, and Cardin, not wanting to risk missing anything, decided no further action would be taken until the sky was clear, the water calmer. London was okay with this, mostly due to Cardin ending his message with, Once the attack is back on, this should be over within a day. Who wouldn't cheer the man, his message, and his decision? The weather lifted six days later, and by next Thursday, the battle resumed. De Robeck moved in even closer, his guns now unable to miss any targets. The German and Turkish gunners on Gallipoli ran north. The ones on the Asian side fled to the east. Royal Marines were offloaded onto Gallipoli, the northern peninsula. Guns were spiked and searchlights destroyed. The same thing happened on Kum Kal to the south. With success seemingly beyond doubt, minesweepers were sent further into the strait, six miles more, to within 3,000 yards up Kepfes Point, where the strait narrows, but not the narrowest point, before the waterway turns north into the narrows proper. This was seen as significant because only at Kepfes Point, with the strait narrowed by geography, would the Allied ships have to concern themselves with the range of the shore-based batteries. So, between the mouth and Kepfes Point, the Allies dominated the water and the land that touched it. Cardin's plan was unfolding beautifully, so much so that the Admiral wired London his prediction that he would reach Constantinople within two weeks. The War Council back in London cheered and slapped each other on the backs until throats, hands, and shoulders were sore. Who among them that agreed to this plan wasn't a genius? This hideous war was about to take a vital turn in favor of the Allies. Admiral Fisher, now back in a hawkish mood, wanted to be rushed to the Dardanelles personally to lead the next battle. The Allied politicians could just see all that Russian wheat being given to their men. 
The price of grain in Chicago fell impressively. Good times were ahead for everyone, that is, except the Turk. And Winston, being Winston, couldn't stop himself from writing to Grand Duke Nicholas, saying, Ready your fleet. The waterway will soon be ours, and yours. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Asquith wrote to his inconsistent mistress, Venetia, that, quote, Winston is breast high about the Dardanelles, unquote. Why do I keep mentioning the young lady, you may ask? Because she has more to do with this final act of Churchill's current career than you can possibly imagine. And the good news only continued. That very same day, Greece let London know that they were ready to come in on the side of the Allies. Also, Bulgaria, Romania, and Italy were all but ready to join the cause. Because really, who wouldn't want to be on the winning side? But these seemingly former standbys weren't the only ones thinking of the future. Everyone, from Asquith on down, wrote papers from peace terms to the Turks, to taking the fight to Germany proper, to how best use the rush of allies about to join the cause. These were heady days and nights, indeed. And way back in everyone's mind were the, at one point, all-important men of Kitchener's 29th Division, who were certainly no longer needed. After all, there were British troops in Egypt, the Royal Naval Division, already en route, 2,000 Royal Marines to Lemnos, one French Division, three more promised by the Greeks, a Russian Corps once the route to the Black Sea was cleared, and all this did not even take into account the men promised by Bulgaria, Romania, and Italy. Kitchener could keep his 29th Division. But those men of the 29th and in Egypt were real. They could interact with and upon the world. Those men of promises from Greece, Bulgaria, Romania, and Italy were not real. They were words. Which stops no bullet or overruns a shore battery. Greece was waiting. They were committed, but waiting, for an Allied success. However, Winston knew if Greece would come in now with their 60,000 available troops, they could take the rest of Gallipoli and hold it, leaving the British and French free to focus on the Turkish capital. But they didn't. They were waiting, like the other Balkan powers. And during that time, it all began to fall apart. Britain and France, in order to entice the Greeks further, were ready to tell them that Greece could accept the surrender of Constantinople. But Tsar Nicholas of Russia said no, and his tone was one of a ruler. That was not how this was going to happen. The Bosphorus, the waterway in front of the Turkish capital, was his. The city itself was his. He had waited for this moment, had suffered staggering losses for this. Besides, the grain they all needed was his, wasn't it? This victory was his, because quite frankly, with the political situation at home disintegrating day by day, he needed it. But then, making matters even worse, the Tsar told the British ambassador that if King Constantine of Greece was allowed to move troops into Constantinople, they would never leave. It was, to his mind, just setting up another struggle for another day. Somehow, word of this treacherous assessment of Greece got back to the Aegean country, and the shock caused the government of Venizelos to fall. 
His cabinet was replaced by a pro-German one that declared its intentions to keep Greece neutral. Besides, Greek troops were needed to keep an eye on the untrusting Bulgarians. And just like that, two of those promises the Allies had planned on disappeared like smoke. The onus was back on Cardin and his plan. But the plan and its author were having their own troubles. On the same day the new Greek government announced its decision to remain neutral, Turkish riflemen stormed Cape Hellas and Kumkals and pushed out the British landing parties. Still, a British victory could be achieved by pushing forward. But then intense storms delayed naval action for a few days. The Turkish riflemen used that time to return to their guns and dig in. When the weather cleared, the British battleships received orders on March 8th to clear the guns, not at the Strait's mouth, which were still mostly ineffective against the modern naval brutes, but along the southern shore, past the point they had already reached, Kepfez Point and further along the Strait to Shanak, where the waterway is at its narrowest and turns north. This action would further weaken the Turks and allow more space between the resurgent Turks at the mouth and the Allied ships as they would be moving further within the strait. But as the battleships moved deeper into the waterway, they ran into minefields. No matter, send in the trawlers used as minesweepers. But as the trawlers moved in, they found themselves within range of the Turkish guns on the land to the south. Sustaining casualties, the minesweepers, manned by civilian fishermen, backed away from the guns and the mines. One of the trawler's officers explained to Commodore Roger Keyes, Cardin's chief of staff, his men, quote, recognize sweeping risks and don't mind getting blown up, but they hate the gunfire and point out that they aren't supposed to sweep under fire. They didn't join up for that, unquote. But Keyes didn't have time for this, because Cardin didn't, because Churchill didn't, and Winston terrified Admiral Cardin. So Keyes offered the men bonuses and sought volunteers among his own men. They set out that night, but found instead of bullets landing among them, very powerful searchlights in their eyes. Then the bullets came. Fortunately, the land-based guns weren't any more accurate, but the sound they made along with the light exposing the trawlers and stinging the men's eyes, caused enough panic to make them turn back. When the men returned, Keyes bellowed at them. The gunfire was indeed intimidating, as it was intended to be. Still shouting, he then asked the men to notice that none of them, nor any of their ships, had been hit. The Commodore had them go out the next night, but the results were the same. The men came back, shaken, but the mines still lay, waiting, blocking their progress. The next day, March 11th, Winston wired Cardin that he and the Admiralty, in general, were impressed with all he had done, but it now seemed to be the time to press hard on the enemy. If casualties were the price of success, then so be it, because the reward was so much more greater. But Cardin didn't answer the wire with one of his own. His nerves were coming undone, and each wire from the First Lord shook him all the more to his core. Still, Keyes kept at the men, and two days later, the mines had been cut adrift and were floating south past the Allied ships. 
Cardin had his staff report to the Admiralty the good news and say that in just under a week, they should be able to begin their assault on the Narrows. This would open up the Sea of Marmara and lead to Constantinople. But this assessment liked Winston not. He shot back. Why would the assault not start for days? You had everything you need. His wire went on to say that intelligence had discovered that the Turkish guns were low on ammunition, and in this they were right, so now was the time to engage. Losses would occur. It was the price of victory. Quote, All this makes it clear that the operations should now be pressed forward methodically and resolutely by night and day. The unavoidable losses must be accepted. The enemy is harassed and anxious now. The time is precious, as the interference of submarines would be a very serious complication. Unquote. When Winston mentioned the sub, he may have pushed his vice-admiral over the edge. But beyond that, Cardin didn't believe Winston's information about Turkish ammunition, though true it was. And because it was, the First Lord wanted the enemy engaged to speed up the moment they ran out completely. But instead of lunging at the enemy, though Cardin promised to do this on March 17th, instead he lunged for his cabin. But the worried Vice Admiral could not sleep, which only exacerbated his problem. So much so that by March 15th, two days before renewing his offensive, the withered man told Keyes he was resigning his commission. To their credit, his staff quickly got over their shock and tried to dissuade the man from his decision. But all for naught. To support the admiral, a neurologist who was serving on board examined Cardin and diagnosed that the admiral indeed was near collapse. Thus Cardin's plan and command was passed to de Robeck, who Winston wasted no time in contacting. Quote, Personal and secret from First Lord. In entrusting to you with great confidence the command of the Mediterranean detached fleet, I presume that you consider, after separate and independent judgment, that the immediate operations proposed are wise and practicable. If not, do not hesitate to say so. If so, execute them without delay and without further reference at the first favorable opportunity. All good fortune attend you. Unquote. De Robach's reply that morning of March 17th was that he would attack that very day. The fleet moved into position further along the waterway, but had to wait for the morning fog to lift. When it did, at roughly 10.30 a.m., the Allies eyed their goal, a line of enemy forts along the coast to the south. As for the Turks and Germans, when that same fog lifted, their view was much more daunting. Coming at them were four dreadnoughts, flanked by two battleships. Behind this group were four French men of war, again flanked by British battleships. These were the vessels to see action today, but once they were done, the reserve force, six more battleships, with numerous destroyers and trawlers, would move up and finally force the Narrows. The leading six war vessels moved into position, but still out of range of enemy guns. Each ship selected a target and opened fire. Three had their guns facing at the Shanak or Asian side of the waterway. The other three pointed their massive guns at the Killed Bar, or European side. Both line of forts were soon smoldering with rubble and body parts scattered about. By noon, there wasn't much left, 
But still, caution in war is a virtue. So then, the French ships moved up and continued the bombardment to each side for almost an hour. Though the forts were raised to the ground, one blockhouse from each side had an allied shell land amongst their ammunition, and those structures were truly reduced to rubble. Clearly, by a little after 1 p.m., any organized resistance was beyond the ability of the Turks. De Robac decided now was the time to take the Narrows, and accordingly signaled the French ships to stand down. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. But here is where the campaign that could have turned the war around turned against the Allies. Just as the French vessel Beauvais was moving out of line towards the Asian side of the strait, there was a ship-shaking explosion. In under two minutes, the ship heeled over and sank, taking with it its entire crew of 639 seamen. This shocked and then angered the crew of the other six war vessels, rushing to take the lead. In response, the British opened up again on both lines of forts, not that there was anything substantial to aim at. But de Robac, like his staff, believed a lucky howitzer managed to hit the doomed ship's magazine. This latest vengeful bombardment lasted until 4 p.m. The Allied anger assuaged, the minesweepers were then sent forward. The men worked diligently on cutting cables with their kites when another apparent lucky howitzer shot landed near the smaller vessels. Panicking, the minesweepers retreated, only to be replaced by another group, which in their turn retreated after almost losing one of their own to an incoming shell. At this point, de Robeck was more angry at his men than at the Turks, but his attention was dragged away at 4.41 p.m., when the battleship Inflexible shook from an explosion, curiously near the same place the Beauvais was hit. Inflexible quickly listed heavily, but still managed to limp to the rear. De Robac was thinking there was no such thing as two lucky shots when a third explosion rang out. Now it was the irresistible listing heavily to one side. Trying to remain calm, de Robac suspected the Turks were floating mines down the waterway. But until he could be sure, and be sure his ships were relatively safe, he called off any further advance. 
But as the ships moved away, a fourth man-of-war, Ocean, was hit and forced to limp to the relative safety of the rear. Now, nothing tells the character of a person when they have experienced both victory and defeat in the same day. Commodore Roger Keyes, de Robeck's next-in-command, stayed behind and helped with search and rescue, but overall felt good about the day's outcome. Yes, four ships had been damaged, one a total loss, but the French made it clear they were still determined to force the Narrows. And as bad as it was for the British, these were older ships anyway, not long for this world. But all this was nothing compared to the position the Turks and their German allies were now in. Their guns, all but ineffectual against the Allied ships anyway, were mostly down for the foreseeable future. Their ammunition was low, and their time would be spent tending to the wounded and dead. All the British had to do was convert their destroyers into minesweepers, and the items to do this, tackle, wire, mesh, and kites, were all in Malta, not that far away. They could then finish clearing the water. The result? There would be no organized resistance on land or at sea. The Narrows was theirs and the Sea of Marmara was all but undefended. Constantinople was simply a sail away. So, with this thinking, Keyes was stunned when he returned to the HMS Elizabeth to find de Robeck a shattered man. The leader declared that his career was over. Churchill would remove him. Keyes tried to explain to his broken superior that the First Lord would not do that. How many times had Churchill said, that losses were acceptable, provided they get the job done. The Allies had suffered scratches. The enemy was on their bloody knees. What de Robeck nor Keyes knew was that ten days earlier, the Turkish commander on the Asian side had a string of twenty mines placed parallel to his coast, as opposed to going across the waterway. That he managed to damage four ships in one day was beyond his greatest hope. But still, surely, the British would figure this out, or at least enough, not to approach too close to land, use their range to continue to blast apart his guns and men, and send in their minesweepers to clean up. Yes, the Allies would suffer loss, but they would win the Narrows, reach Constantinople. And really, wasn't that what this was all about? Besides, on the Asian side, or to the south, the Turks were out of both shells and mines. To get this far, they had used captured Russian mines. The fight was over. Now all the Turkish soldiers could do was watch the British ships go past them the next day and take their capital. And the people in that capital felt the same way. They were all getting out. The Sultan had his gold, horses, and harem loaded up on two trains to make good his escape. As for the Gobin and Breslau, they weighed anchor and prepared to dash across the Black Sea. As the sun rose on March 19th, the capital was defenseless, the Sea of Marmara inviting, the narrows all but open, the strait before that in the grasp of the British. They just didn't know it. Back in London and Paris, the men supporting this action were elated. Winston and his French counterpart promised to make good the lost ships. The thing to do, obviously, was to take advantage of the previous day's work. After all, the day had been theirs. But then, it all fell apart. 
in London and in the Eastern Mediterranean. Lord Fisher was his usual hot and cold self. Within hours of each other, the first sea lord danced a jig in front of Winston, singing they had done it, and then later despaired over the loss of ships and that he never really wanted any part of this operation anyway. That there were no troops to occupy Gallipoli, which made all this pointless. This was not technically true. If Constantinople could be taken, the Turks would be unable to resupply the peninsula, Gallipoli. But cutting to the chase, the Dardanelles campaign was over. Oh, to be sure, there would be men eventually supplied, more naval bombardments, and Churchill's hope. But no territory would exchange hands. And what would the Allies have to show for all this? Almost a quarter of a million more Allied casualties. Although there is enough blame to go around, the bulk of it must go to Kitchener. He's the one who withheld the 29th Division when its implementation would have spelled success for the operation. He's the one who all but determined this course of action. He's the one who said that even if the Navy was unable to carry this through, the Army should make sure it is done, because the results were so advantageous. But at the time, the majority of the British, civilians and military, the French, civilians and military, saw the failed campaign as being Churchill's fault. The investigation a year later would not change that view, because it was not politic to do so. That view is still held by many to this day. So here's what happened. Now that the Turks were all but beaten, Kitchener, a better politician than soldier, declared that events in France were such that he felt confident in releasing the 29th Division for Gallipoli. What's more, he would add the Aussies and New Zealanders, or Anzacs, plus the Royal Marines, all told about 70,000 men. The War Council was ecstatic. Ian Hamilton, K of K's protege, was placed in charge of this Mediterranean expeditionary force. Winston was happy with this decision, but not all were. Asquith thought Hamilton had, quote, too much feather in his brain, unquote. This was probably because the general wrote poetry and was known for keeping a gossipy diary. Winston made sure Hamilton was transported to the theater with all dispatch, though, due to Kitchener's touchiness, the First Lord and General would not be speaking directly to each other. Choppy Waters kept a Robeck from continuing his assault, but, using his time wisely, he had 62 destroyers converted into minesweepers. If all the enemy had were mines to fight with, de Robeck would first take them away. Churchill wired the Admiral that more ships were en route, to only fight on if he, de Robeck, thought it prudent, but if he did, by God, do what must be done, and quickly. Time was now working against them. And all seemed to be going well. The Navy would move in again, clear the waters, and rush the narrows. But it never happened. Because by then, General Hamilton had sailed to the mouth of the Dardanelles, looked at Gallipoli through binoculars, returned to his base at Lemnos, and wrote to Kitchener, quote, I am most reluctantly driven to the conclusion that the Straits are not likely to be forced by battleships, as at one time seemed probable, and that, if my troops are to take part, it will not take the subsidiary form anticipated. 
The Army's part will be more than mere landing parties to destroy forts. It must be a deliberate and prepared military operation, carried out at full strength, unquote. Which is exactly what should have been done against a prepared and supplied foe, which the Turks were anything but. All they needed was a British nudge to topple over. They knew it, but Hamilton didn't, and that was only the beginning of the things he did not know. He never ascertained the situation at the Narrows, nor along the coastline on the Asian side. He had no idea of the power of naval guns, but he immediately made up his mind anyway. On March 22nd, four days after the Royal Navy, along with the French, put the Turks back on their heels, de Robeck met with Hamilton, just off the island of Lemnos. Much later, the two men gave different accounts of who said what, but the Admiral's is more believable. According to de Robeck, Hamilton said that a joint operation is now needed, but his men were not here yet, and it would be a mistake to move against the enemy again until a plan could be worked out to maximize the support and impact of both branches. If this account is true, and probably some version of it is, this was Hamilton's second mistake. But now it was de Robeck's turn to make one, and his would be the size of Hamilton's two combined. The Admiral went to the meeting with the following mindset. He already felt the guilt of his damaged ships, which he considered a sin within the Royal Navy. That was because the new mindset, yet to settle in, like it did for the Army, was that there would be losses, a lot of them. Furthermore, de Robeck knew that the great Fisher was against this operation, even if Churchill was for it. But Churchill was just a minister, a civilian. He too would pass. But the Navy and its institutional memory would live on forever. Besides, de Robeck was exhausted, if still with some fight in him. But he certainly wouldn't mind passing authority over to someone else. And here was just the man sitting before him. So quietly, passively, the baton of leadership was passed over. De Robeck asked where would Hamilton land his troops? On the west side of Gallipoli to storm Constantinople? No, the general replied, at the southern tip, farthest from. This would allow his men to fight their way north without having to worry about their rear. Again, sound military doctrine for another battle. The Turks had been extremely harassed and were mostly without ammunition for their larger guns. One assumes Hamilton expected his enemy to remain that way until he was ready to launch his offensive around the middle of next month, April. When news of this joint attack reached London, Fisher, along with two other admirals, backed it to the fullest. But Winston saw the folly of waiting, of letting the Turks and Germans regroup and rearm, not to mention giving enemy submarines time to reach the strait. So he composed a wire ordering de Robeck to force the Narrows, which was supported by Kitchener and the Prime Minister. But Asquith did not have the gastrointestinal fortitude to override Fisher, just in case something went wrong. Winston bucked himself up and wired de Robeck against Fisher's stern advice and asked why the delay for the Navy. Has the situation of desolated Turkish forts somehow changed? The reply was vague and not even worth repeating. 
The gist is that the Turks and Germans were given enough time to receive 150 mines, countless shells, and additional large guns, all through Romania, which Secretary Gray said would be pointless to complain about. Besides, he went on, Italy was about to join in on their side, in no small part to Churchill's endeavors, and a disaster in the strait might make the Italians postpone their announcement. Then de Robeck decided to give battle, to Churchill's constant pressing dispatches, that is. The Admiral complained, and I'll try to make this make sense, that taking out the Romanian blockhouses along both coasts would use up too much ammunition, and the mines were worse than ever. But, one, wasn't that what the ammunition was for, and two, that's what the 62 converted destroyers were for. In essence, de Robeck did not want to fight and wanted decisions to be made by Hamilton, whose superior replied right on cue. Secretary of War Kitchener told the cabinet that the army was ready to take over the operation of opening the Dardanelles, and that was when Churchill knew his time and the time of the Navy had passed. Taking the shattering loss with as much calm as possible, the First Lord wired to de Robeck, quote, I had hoped that it would be possible to achieve the results according to the original plan without involving the army. But the reasons you give make it clear that a combined operation is now indispensable. All your proposals will therefore be approved. Unquote. De Robeck was now under Hamilton. But the general never asked the Navy to do anything. So, no further mines were swept. No further blockhouses were shelled and the Narrows were left alone. Still, Churchill, being Churchill, persisted, if only to himself, in hope. Hope that the Navy would be given the green light to dash through to the Sea of Marmara, which was still undefended, and scare all those within the capital. On April 29th, someone found Winston at his maps, planning a course, just in case the word yes came from Kitchener. Winston told his visitor, quote, This is one of the great campaigns of history. Think what Constantinople is to the east. It is more than London, Paris, and Berlin rolled into one, are to the west. Think how it has dominated the east. Think what its fall will mean. Think how it will affect Bulgaria, Greece, Romania, and Italy, who have already been affected by what has taken place. You cannot win this war by sitting still. We are merely using our surplus ships in the Dardanelles. Most of them are old vessels. The ammunition, even the rifle ammunition, is different from that which we are using in France, an older type. So, there is no loss of power there. I am not responsible for the expedition. I do not shirk responsibility, but it is untrue to say that I have done this off my own bat. Unquote. And this was true enough, as we have shown here. Not that it mattered. To the British people, the Dardanelles' failure was his fault. There were five weeks in between the day de Robeck's forces left off their attack and Hamilton's transport ships, five in all, unloaded at said El Bar at the southern extreme tip of Gallipoli. By that time, Turkey's best, though German-hating general, Mustafa Kemal, had 60,000 men behind barbed wire and machine guns, which were themselves backed 
by heavier guns. The result being five beachheads, all suffering massive casualties. A naval aircraft flew over during the assault on the beaches and saw a streak of blood from the sand to 50 yards out in the water. The beachheads were established, but no local commander would go any further in, either because of the risk or the uncertainty of their superior. During and after the initial assault, General Hamilton stayed aboard the Queen Elizabeth, out of contact with his staff and shore commanders. He felt giving detailed orders would only interfere with their responsibility. The casualties mounted. Mustafa Kemal took whatever heights were near the beachheads and made the Anzacs, Aussies, and English suffer. Within weeks, Gallipoli was a mirror image of eastern France. With the eastern offensive stalled, Fisher again started complaining to the walls of whatever room he was in that the Dardanelles would be their grave, and the gulf between Winston and Fisher widened and became known to all in the House of Commons. And, God bless her, Margot Asquith snapped at Fisher what many were thinking. Quote, you know, you have talked too much. All London knows you are against the Dardanelles expedition. Why didn't you resign? Unquote. It would be going too far to call Margot Winston's ally. However, Violet was another matter. She loved Winston much like the Prime Minister wished Venetia cared for him. But Winston couldn't give Fisher his full attention. Asquith had put him in charge of negotiating with the Italians, who were tantalizingly close to committing themselves. And this meant going frequently to Paris for the talks. Just days after Margot Asquith snapped at Fisher, Clementine caught the first sea lord walking the halls of the Admiralty House. The old man turned on her, quote, You are a foolish woman. All the time you think Winston's with Sir John French, he is in Paris with his mistress, unquote. But Cat, knowing her husband better than anyone, saw this as proof that Fisher was indeed losing his mind. In early May, back in the Dardanelles, Commodore Roger Keyes, taking a page from Winston's book, saw the Army's stalemate as an opportunity for the Navy. Keyes formulated a plan, using the older battleships to force the Narrows and dash for Constantinople. He laid it out for de Robeck and his staff, and all agreed it was the way to go. The French felt the same. Of course, Fisher was against it, but so was Churchill, for a specific reason. As part of the deal with Italy, Winston had promised them four battleships and four cruisers to help protect their Mediterranean assets. And, as the Dardanelles seemed to be a corpse of an operation, the promised ships were coming from De Robeck. Still, this was good news, and so Winston started scouting for the ships needed for Italy. Just then, a message from the strait reached the Admiralty. A Turkish submarine had just sunk the HMS Goliath. This was not a terrific blow to the cause, but it caused Fisher to be even more cautious and hate the Eastern campaign even more. And all this, the complete picture of the Dardanelles, came out in a meeting of the War Council on May 14th. Kitchener started it off without his normal composure by venting that he was under the impression that the Eastern campaign was supposed to be a joint Army-Navy venture. Now it was obvious that Hamilton, his man, was being left holding the bag. 
and the army couldn't afford the losses it was sustaining. At least in France, the casualties were help holding back the Germans. This, of course, was a political gesture. All knew Hamilton was now in charge, the Navy answering to the army. Then Fisher exploded that he had been against the entire campaign from the beginning. He knew this would be the result and never wanted any part of it. This caused Winston to bark at his first sea lord that Fisher's F and signature were on every executive order that went out. So what the hell was he talking about? Asquith tried a few times to regain control, to calm the room, but it was beyond his ability. Finally, probably from sheer exhaustion, the men relaxed. Then the Prime Minister gave Fisher a small concession about the Queen Elizabeth, and the meeting broke up. But there was still work to do. Winston took Fisher to the First Sea Lord's office, perhaps to help the man feel more secure, went over every decision they made together, and then, against Fisher's desire, drew up new orders for de Robeck, based on Commodore Key's plan to penetrate the Sea of Marmara. By the time the men were done, it was very late. Winston suggested that Fisher get some sleep. Things will look better in the morning. There, Winston was wrong. The next day, May 15th, a Saturday, Churchill made for the Foreign Office to look over the final draft of the Italian Treaty. As he was leaving, a naval aide rushed up to him and declared, quote, Fisher has resigned, and I think he means it this time, unquote. Winston remained calm, as this was probably the eighth resignation Fisher had tenured. But when back at the Admiralty, no one could find the first sea lord. Now, this was serious. Winston took Fisher's note to himself that expressed his regretful departure and hoped Churchill would understand to 10 Downing Street. Asquith, beside himself with rage, forced Fisher back in the king's name. The man came back, but would not undo what he had done. Fisher promised to stay in London, but he was out of the Admiralty, period. With hindsight, it's clear that Fisher was posturing, which is normal in politics, but selfish during war. Not that he was alone in doing so. He wanted total control over the Admiralty and Winston, if Churchill remained in his post. But then, going one step lower and turning on the man who brought him out of retirement, Fisher sent a letter of his leaving to Churchill's most powerful enemy and critic, Bonar Law. Fisher was now out to ruin Winston, but would let another do the actual job. The Liberal Party was far from its popularity before the war, when they were fighting the Tories for helping those who needed it. But now, with the war, the countless deaths, the feeling of helplessness, the people were ready for a change, and the Tories, as is the job of the opposition, were always looking for their chance at that change. Sir John French, in charge of the British forces in France, was in the same position as the government, and was equally looking for any excuse to shift the blame away from himself. And, somehow, the two low points were rolled into one and left at Churchill's doorstep. Before the blame could reach a crescendo, Sir John French told the newspapers that the civilians in the government were making it impossible for him to win the war. For example, the civilians were dragging their feet on delivering to him more high-explosive shells. 
the war would look very different now if he only had more shells. The newspapers, instead of investigating this most serious accusation, ran with it. The headlines were big, bold, and thrusted like a dagger. Now on a roll, French then let it be known that men that should have been coming to him to help kill the Germans, the only way to win this war, were being sent to Gallipoli. Again, the newspapers did not seek details, but lambasted the man in charge of the Eastern Theater. No, not Kitchener. No, not Hamilton. No, not even de Robeck, but Winston Churchill, who was slow to pick up on this as he knew he wasn't in charge and hadn't been for some time. That is, until the newspapers came out and castigated him for his failure in the East due to his ego, his lust for war, his not understanding of modern devices of war, and his bad, pathetic leadership. The damaging articles went on to deride Winston for not even being at his desk most of the time. How many times had he been to Paris, and what was he doing there? Of course, Asquith could not say why, Winston's dealings with the Italians. So instead, the Prime Minister just let the silence stand. But it got worse for Winston, and a bit ridiculous. Soon, the shell shortage was blamed on Churchill. Then every failure to capture territory in France was Winston's doing. The universe, it seemed, was turning its face from the Sea Lord. And that included Asquith. Surely a man who had reached the Prime Ministership had the ability to create some plausible reason for his Sea Lord's disappearances, or at least to deflect the unreasonable storm brewing around Churchill. But at that moment, if it ever existed, Asquith was not up to the job. His heart, his soul, his reason for living, his mistress, Venetia Stanley, had just left him. Or rather, just left him a Dear John letter. On May 14th, the day before Fisher wrote his eighth resignation letter and disappeared from the Admiralty, the lovely young lady ended the affair with the Prime Minister. She had found someone closer to her age to marry, and had the bad taste to say exactly that in her letter. So, just when Winston needed a strong, centered, clear-thinking, even half-hearted defender, Asquith was not that man, could not be that man. He was too busy writing letters to Venetia, begging her to come back. Quote, this is too terrible. No hell could be so bad. You alone of all the world to whom I have always gone in every moment of trial and trouble, and from whom I have always come back solaced and healed and inspired. I am on the eve of the most astounding and world-shaking decisions, such as I would never have taken without your counsel and consent. It seems so strange and empty and unnatural. Yet there is nowhere else that I could go, nor would if I could." Unquote. One can only assume he temporarily forgot his wife, daughter, other family, friends, colleagues. As for Bonar Law, when he found out about the split between Fisher and Churchill, the Tory leader saw his chance. Law challenged Asquith by saying he would discuss this division within the Admiralty at the highest level of the House. The Prime Minister was too busy writing letters to Venetia. Then Law proposed a coalition government. Asquith was too crushed to fight back. Law then declared that his price for taking away some of the responsibility from the Liberal government was that Winston 
had to go, and Arthur Balfour had to become First Lord in his place. Asquith acquiesced. Churchill knew none of this as it unfolded, but did figure out that some parts of the truth needed to be made known, and he would do it. Preparing a speech that pointed out his part of the Dardanelles campaign, but others too, especially those persons with greater responsibility than himself, he readied himself to speak before the House of Commons. And although exhausted from his ongoing negotiations with the Italians, he memorized his speech that Sunday of May 16th. By Monday morning, he was ready. But it was all for nothing. The speech was never given, wasn't allowed to be given. Asquith informed a shocked Winston, quote, No, this will not do. I have decided to form a national government. What are we to do for you? Unquote. Before Churchill could even begin to reel and recover from this, Asquith went on. Did the about-to-be-former-first lord want another cabinet post, or would he rather have a command in France? But before another word could be said by either man, Lloyd George walked into the room. Winston would find out in time that Lloyd George had more to do with his dismissal than he wanted to realize. It was L.G. that was the middleman between Asquith and Bonar Law. But at the moment, the best Churchill could do Acting on instincts was to say, he would not accept anything unless it was connected to the war. Later that evening, he clarified his thinking in a letter to Asquith. Quote, if you find it necessary to make a change here, I should be glad, assuming it was thought fitting to be offered a position in the new government. But I will not take any office except a military department. And if that is not convenient, I hope I may be found employment in the field. Unquote. But then, as the wheels of politics moved slowly, Winston had time to think about his letter, and he came to the conclusion that he loved the Admiralty and couldn't picture himself anywhere else. To his distraught and overworked mind, if only the truth were known, he would be kept in his place within the new government. So, he gathered his notes from the entire experience and sent them to Bonar Law. Desperation, indeed. But Law had wanted Winston's head, politically speaking, for years. Switching gears, Winston then prepared a statement for the press, again wanting to make plain his limited and ever-decreasing role in the Eastern Campaign. He showed his work to Lloyd George, who all but shouted that most of this was classified and couldn't be shown to anyone outside the War Council. Winston turned on L.G., who would be the munitions minister in the new cabinet. Quote, you don't care. You don't care if I am trampled upon by my enemies. You don't care for my personal reputation. Unquote. To which L.G. responded just as hotly. Quote, no, I don't. I don't care for my own at the present time. The only thing I care about now is that we win in this war. Unquote. Winston was too emotional at the moment to realize that L.G. was being completely honest in all that he had just said. But in a very short time, Clementine would see this and constantly warn her husband. L.G. was a political animal, too, and looked out for himself. And Winston, being Winston, continued to fight for his position. He wrote to all that mattered of his desire of wanting a fair hearing, to have all the facts laid out. He wrote to the Prime Minister that the Conservatives might only know what they read in the newspapers, but he, Asquith, 
knew the truth. All of it. Winston's trips to France to talk to the Italians. That Kishner had forced the Dardanelles plan after it was out of Winston's hand. That KFK had promised and then withheld the idle 29th Division when it could have made a tremendous difference. That the army had taken over the entire operation. And that lastly, Winston had not been in charge since March 18th. The day the Navy all but broke the defenders back and the narrows laid open before them. Yes, Asquith knew it all, but what was he going to do with that information? Winston would find out soon enough. Nothing. Churchill finally heard from Bonar Law. It was short and to the point. Churchill must accept his removal from the Admiralty as, quote, inevitable, unquote. Hard upon this, Winston got a reply from the Prime Minister, quote, you must take it as settled that you are not to remain at the Admiralty, unquote. And that was the end of that. Winston replied in writing, quote, All right, I accept your decision. I shall not look back. I must wait for the march of events at the Dardanelles. Unquote. The next day, the Allies had a new partner. Italy came into the war, and the bulk of the work had been Churchill's. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, yes, I truly, truly jinxed myself when I said on the last episode that I was not taking a break. What I should have said was, but my computer might. And it did. It died on me, as it seems to do every December. And it was in the shop for a week. Sorry about that. The uh, tech, who was very good and very nice, called my machine vintage. Um, Ouch, that hurt. But anyway, it's still getting the job done, so I'm going to stick with it as long as I can. So I'm very sorry about the delay. Uh, it was not some tension-building tactic between the Dardanelles Part 1 and Dardanelles Part 2. I'm not that clever. So uh, anyways, I just wanted to thank a couple people for their contributions. Um, Christopher H. bought a mug for his father, Stephen. So thank you very much. I have some new members, Rosa A. in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Philip L. in Austin, Texas, and Daryl R. in Bonner Springs, Kansas. Also, John L. from Walnut Creek, California, became a member and made a Christmas donation. So thank you very much, John. Um, also, Stephen R. bought a CD, The Battle of Britain, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Um, and I think it's funny that Stephen R. is from Stevenson, Virginia. So, And lastly, Robert Y. also bought a CD. So again, thank you to everyone for supporting the show. So now that everything's back to normal here, operational-wise, um, let's get through Churchill's, um, some more of his life, and then we'll get back to the war. Uh, I'll do it as fast as I can. But again, I'm having fun, and I'm learning a lot about the man, and he never stops uh, to amaze me. So take care. I hope 2014 is good to everyone, and I will see you as soon as I can. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.